Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Good Tuesday to you all on the simulcast again today. Happy Tuesday on YouTube. Happy Tuesday to my recorded podcast listeners. And there are some of you on all sides, as the uh, Twitter poll suggested. It's Twitter poll season, everybody. It's Twitter poll season. I don't know if you guys knew that. Yesterday's poll was, now that I do shows on YouTube, in addition to the recorded side... Have you made the jump to video? And results were inconclusive because there weren't that many votes, frankly, off-season level uh, algorithm fun on Twitter. Uh, about a quarter of you said that you've switched now to watching them all on YouTube. Quarter of you said once in a while on video. Just under half of you said pretty much still just re- listen to the recorded one. And 9% of you said, you have a podcast? Which actually is the most frustrating of all of them. So apparently I got to make sure that the 9% that answered option D are aware we do a show. This is the most important thing we do. I know that everybody's like, oh, Dan, your, your Twitter recaps are the best thing. You, you like created a way of seeing basketball that everybody now is doing. Uh, well, that's cool and all, but that doesn't fully convey everything that's going on in fantasy sports. That's why we need this. The podcast is the land of context. Anywho, today on the show, we finish up the old man squad at long last. It was supposed to be a three-part series. It ended up as a four-part series, but you know what? Who cares? It's the off-season. We're 16, I believe, shows into the off-season out of many. There's like 100. So don't hurry is the lesson so far. And the lesson of the final six on the old man squad is generally do what you did, but let's figure out why, and let's figure out where the misses came in. First of all, hi, everyone. I'm Dan Bespris. You guys know that, I think, by now. But those that, I think there are a couple of you that that find this show for a first time specifically on the YouTube side. So I'm going to enlarge my hideous mug. And so everybody can see the Twitter handle, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. This is a Sports Ethos presentation, also right there on the screen, sportsethos.com. I was driving in the car yesterday, and I heard uh, an advertisement come on the radio, and someone was like, Ethos has changed my life. And I was like, oh my God, are we doing radio ads in Southern California? Nope. It's a new life insurance company. (laughs) Ah, crap. Ah, well, maybe somebody will be looking for life insurance policies and they'll end up at Sports Ethos and go, this is way better. This is way less dark. All right, I'm going to re-shrink my face now for the the video cast folks, those listening on the recorded side. You just get to listen to me scream at you all day. What could be better? With an ADP of 118.8. Big flopperoonie here in the uh, last chunk of the old man squad. Jalen Smith, who uh, I thought was going to have a per game and totals rank somewhere in the 80 range. Those on the screen can see 79 per game, 85 by totals, because I thought there'd be some late season or even mid-season shenanigans. It was shenanigans up the wazoo with Jalen Smith. He started the year, and everything looked 
I don't know, kind of okay, actually. And that lasts for like a week and a half, if that. Honestly, I don't even want to go all the way back there because it's just going to make me sad. But we should probably go all the way back there. Uh, Jalen Smith started the year as the power forward, and it ended up being sort of the power forward du jour for Indiana. But it was his job, remember? In late October, I think he played, what? There you go, 22 minutes in the first game of the year. He had 16-8 and eight with a block. Missed some free throws, but everything seemed fine. Next game, he played seven minutes, and the uh, tomfoolery was on. Although he did have a couple decent ones after that. 19 and 15, 17 and 10, 15 and 9, 15 and 7, 8 and 14. And it was about, I guess that would be just a little over two weeks into the season where the wheels started to come off. And it wasn't like he didn't have a couple of good ball games here and there, but they had the Pacers had a back-to-back in Brooklyn, October 29th and October 31st. And in the game on the 29th, he shot 3 for 14 from the field. But he still got 14 rebounds, and so there was still something there. Seven offensive rebounds as well, and it was in a win. And the next time out, he played 26 minutes. Thought, all right, well, okay, three points, four rebounds, just not at all involved. They had Miami. November 4th, might have even missed a game in there if I'm not mistaken, zero points, one rebound, three turnovers in that game, and it just, from that point on, it was like one decent game every week and a half, which unfortunately, it's, you know, it's fun, you see the big game and you're like, ooh, is this the one, and then it was never the one, and then he lost his job, and then he didn't play for stretches, and Rick Carlisle yanked him around like nobody's business, and it really never resettled until the last three games of the regular season. He played 29, 27, and 26 minutes in those games, and he had pretty decent numbers, 12 and 15 with a block, 12 and 8 with two blocks, 19 and 3 with three blocks. And over those three games, he went 5 for 10, 5 for 8, 8 for 11, if you even wanted to go one game earlier against Milwaukee, he had a pretty good line, but he only played 19 and a half minutes in that one. What can we take away from this? Well, we knew he was going to be the starting power forward going into the year. What we didn't know is that it was going to be straight nonsense from week three until week 24. So I don't feel as bad about the Jalen Smith call as I do about the Isaiah Jackson one, who's two names down the board here. He was a little bit more of a dice roll. Jalen Smith, I didn't actually feel was a dice roll. I was like, okay, worst case scenario, like the defensive stats don't hold and we just get a good field goal percent points rebounds guy, which at 120, basically the end of the 10th round here effectively, is not the worst thing in the universe. And then the playing time just vanished. On a team that ended up trying to win for much longer than we envisioned. And it was only in that final week, two weeks, whatever it was, when the team was like, okay, fine, we'll go full tank mode, that he got to play again. And that's unfortunate, because you're looking at a team, and I know we did the Indiana Review, whatever it was, middle of last week, and and Rhett's piece over at uh, Sports Ethos on the homepage is terrific. You guys should check that out for a more in-depth analysis of it. But it's just super annoying, that these young guys are guys that the Pacers wanted to figure out what they could bring, and instead, they went to old guys, or kind of like semi-old guys. Not that, like, 
Aaron Neesmith is not an old guy, but I think you have an idea of what he is already. It's already not set in stone. That's not fair because he's still young enough to grow, but like you know what his fantasy game is going to be, and you pretty much know what his reality game is going to be. I don't think we knew that about Jalen Smith, but it's also possible that Smith stinking it up for this entire season and not getting the confidence of anybody on the coaching staff, maybe that's the story with him. Maybe it's just not going to happen. I just don't know, though. You see so often with these young bigs that, like, they just, they need time. They need an opportunity to get stronger and understand the game. And defensively, they need to be out there to figure things out. And we didn't get any of that. We might go into next season with Jalen Smith as the likely starting power forward, and we might be in this caught in this infinite loop, which is basically a hell. <laughs> uh, and I don't think I, I wouldn't trust it. But maybe next year's the year that it all that like he figures something out defensively, and and the Pacers can have him out there night to night. But it sure as crap doesn't feel like it. And it sure as crap doesn't feel like the Pacers are going to go into next year and go, you know what, we didn't really tank last season. Maybe we should have. Now we're going to do it. Now we're going to do it after re-signing Miles Turner to a long-term deal. And with a point guard in Tyrese Halliburton that is going to run a team that wins ballgames. They can't. They, they fail to tank. I still don't know, and you know, this conspiracy theory stuff here, but... I think the Pacers were trying to tank this season, and I think Tyrese Halliburton was too good for them to do it. And then he got hurt. Remember, he had an actual real-life injury, and he missed like two and a half weeks, and I think they went, what, 1-10 or 1-9? And it was like, oh, if we want to go get a good draft pick, we can't let Halliburton play. <laughs> He's too damn good. That dude, it's really, it's actually insane how the poise, the efficiency of Halliburton so far. He's he's a, a hell of a young dude that they've got on that team. But anyway, so that's like some of the guys, and you guys remember the last three old man squad things we went through. I, like Keldon Johnson was an obvious idiotic play. Why did, I, why did I dive in on a guy on a team that was just steering into the tank uh, knowing that San Antonio was going to go full shenanigans style there? Where with this one, okay, I thought the tank was actually likely to help Jalen Smith. And it went the other way, and he had the starting job, and we saw this big man-type stat set. Not Maybe not as many defensive stats, but anyway. So I'm going to go out of order here. I want to talk about the other pacer. That's Isaiah Jackson, who had an ADP of about 125. That one I think we can learn something from. Generally don't draft backups. Not all the time. Onyeka Okongwu had a really good fantasy season. It took him some time to get there, mind you, and there were some bumps and bruises along the way. Uh, Clint Capella going down was obviously a, a big factor in him kind of building confidence, and it did look like uh, they ended up in a, in a useful timeshare, actually, by the end of the year. That'll probably continue, by the way. But by and large, the backups specifically the backup big men, because there were like four of them that were all going in this same range. I didn't uh, I didn't have Isaiah Hartenstein. Hartenstein, sorry, he changed. I always love when players are in the league for five years and then they tell everybody that uh, the media guide has their broadcast, has their name wrong. So it's Isaiah Hartenstein. 
Okay, it's fine. All you got to do is tell us. Uh, he wasn't on my board because um, I thought Mitchell Robinson would pretty much just take all of those minutes because they just gave him a nice contract as well. And that was not something we could apply to the Isaiah Jackson boat because Miles Turner for the fourth year in a row was on the trade block. And so uh, what I can, what I put here in the old man squad that I, this is, was actually in the original version that I put out way at the beginning of the season. Final numbers obviously weren't there. I added those here uh, for end of season review, but there was an asterisk. I said, Isaiah Jackson per game, 60 asterisk. Totals, 65. And the asterisk was Miles trade splits. Meaning, after Miles Turner got moved, Isaiah Jackson was a per-game top 60 play. Well, he never got moved. So this is a tough one, because to put out a player with a caveat means that a lot of the onus then falls on follow-up. That is to say, I could say draft Isaiah Jackson in the 11th round. That's the easy part. The hard part is then saying, what do we do if the situation that we are hoping for doesn't come to fruition quickly? How long do we squat on this thing? And the answer was not very long for me, which is unusual. You guys know that I I typically have a lot of patience. Um... You guys might also remember that I abandoned ship on the Indiana big men early when it became very clear that Rick Carlisle was not going to give these guys the time of day on a day-to-day basis. I got the hell out of Dodge, and I didn't feel bad about it. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. Ooh, say all of your friends. You start to sweat. Your friends turn on you. You're forced to go on a last-second drink run and end up missing the game-winning touchdown while in line. Oh, no. Terrifying, isn't it? Luckily, you can avoid the drama with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits then get them delivered right to your watch party. Compare prices across multiple stores in your area, find the best deals on game day drinks, and get back to armchair quarterbacking from, you guessed it, your armchair. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. There's something that... uh. I've talked about with management here um, a lot, and it comes up in the day-to-day. I, I think it's, a, it's sort of a big, it's a big issue with how we all function mentally as human beings, and it's called the sunk cost theory. So, and, and in fantasy, it's, pre- it's extremely prevalent, the sunk cost theory, which is basically saying if you have invested in something, it's much, much harder to get off of that investment when you keep telling yourself, yeah, but I already did this. Yeah, but I already did this. So with Jalen Smith, with Isaiah Jackson, this was something that I was personally battling with 
early in the year. I was like, ah, oh, damn it. You know, I invested in Jalen Smith. I invested in, you know, 8th, 9th, 10th. I Technically 10th. I probably had to go get him in the 9th round pick on Jalen Smith. It's not happening. Carlisle's benched him. He's not playing him. They're like these And Isaiah Jackson, he's getting DNPs in games, and then he's back for 17 minutes in the next one. I can't wait this one out. In any format, I can't wait this one out. And I was able to, and I'm not usually able to do this. A lot of times I stare at, you know, whatever that, that these guys weren't mid-rounders, so it made it a little bit easier. But in this case, kind of later round draft picks and say, well, I got to give them time. You know, upside, blah, blah, blah. With Isaiah Jackson, the upside is absurdly high. So you wanted to try to give him all the time in the universe to get there. But when it became so clear he wasn't getting there, we had to move on. Just take the early season L, turn it into something else. Because that L, the cost, the sunk cost, is small first few weeks of the season. But every three weeks, you're still holding on to these guys. That sunk cost L just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And suddenly it's December, then January, and the sunk cost is too huge. Then you can't get off of it. Well, I've made it four months. I got to see what happens after the trade deadline. Well, the trade deadline's come and gone. I got to see what happens at tank season. Suddenly you've held a guy the entire year. And in this case, Jalen Smith, you know, final totals rank of 187. Isaiah Jackson, final totals rank of 199. They both finished right around the edge of the top 200 in every metric. And a lot of the reason that folks were on them is because of that built-in upside. With Jackson, you understand it. Guy's a blocks monster. But we had to read the writing on the wall with Carlisle, and that was that Rick was going to goof around with all this crap all year long. Luckily for us, the other four names at the back end of the old man squad all had, in some capacity, either... Decent, good, or extraordinary fantasy seasons. And so overall, I feel really good about the guys we got super late in drafts. The Pacers, you know, whatever swear word you want to drop in there, they did that to us. But the other ones, with the exception of one key injury, were great. With an ADP of 120.4, one of our focal point guys was Brooke Lopez, who, I have to admit, I dramatically undervalued him, but I thought he was going to be a decent win regardless. He's shown incredible durability outside of missing last season with a back injury. But prior to that, you know, once he got over his foot stuff in Brooklyn, he's been super available. And Milwaukee, one of the reasons I really liked Brook Lopez this year, they saw how much better they were with him, or frankly, how much more slightly above average they were without him. As the anchor to their defense, he and Giannis, rim protection, I mean, they obviously biffed it here in the playoffs, but who cares about that right now for fantasy? Either Brooke Lopez was going to be, as YouTubers can see on the screen, per game guy between 90 and 100, and totals in the 80s, which still would have made him a two-round value late in drafts, with some built-in upside if he took a few more shots, but never in my wildest dreams, and I don't think anybody thought that it was going to be this significant. Number 21 per game on the shoulders of two and a half blocks per game, 53% from the field, almost two three-pointers as well. His rebounding was better than it has been. His scoring was better than it has been. It was an insane Brook Lopez renaissance. And 
Dude played in 78 out of 82 ball games. He was a 10th, 11th round pick that was a league winner. I love the fact that he was one of our bold focal point guys. And there isn't a whole lot to talk about there, in at least in terms of why it was an easy grab for this season. Looking towards next year, I have no idea what to say about Brooke Lopez because I don't have the first foggy clue where he's going to get drafted next year. None. No clue. Are people going to believe that this was a thing and is he going to start going like in the 50 range? Because that's too rich for my blood. As he starts to, to decline, you'll see the blocks start to come down. The field goal percent will start to come down. The field goal attempts, the rebounds. Um, I don't think that this is a replicatable fantasy season. And honestly, you know, without, without being... I don't want to sound negative because he was one of our guys for this year, but we also have to be kind of aware of what we're getting into. His season didn't really ever taper off. You know, he was number 18, basically the second half of the year. He actually scored more and shot 58%. Blocks came down a little bit. But he was there the whole damn year. Last two months, he averaged 20 points per game. I mean, Brooke Lopez was a man possessed. Middleton being out was useful. But Lopez just being the guy in the middle was the reason that he did what he did. So I'd love to see where he's going to go next season. I truly have no idea. We can't really say, oh, well, I'm going to expect to be back on him next year. We take the values where we can find him, and he was an obvious value this year that ended up being far better than we could have envisioned. So that's a win, and then win plus. We got a little extra out of it. A little extra. A lot extra. Cam Johnson at 127.7 ADP. Uh, I had his per game at 82, which I undershot by a chunk. I had his totals at 66, which I dramatically overshot. But I didn't think he was going to miss half the season with a torn meniscus. Um, And then he missed extra time based on the expected recovery. Luckily, I guess for us, he got traded. That allowed him to do a little bit more. But, I mean, look, overall, we knew he was going to be an easy win on the per game side. The issue ended up being that he missed half the season. Played in 42 out of 82 ball games, almost exactly half. But averaged 15.5 points, 4.5 boards, 2.5 threes, over a steal on 47% from the field, 84 at the free throw line. Um, I love Cam Johnson because he's an efficient player who also gets you three-pointers. That's a great advantage to have. He's a restricted free agent, I believe, this offseason. I'm getting that right. Uh, I'm sure the Nets will try to retain him. He's uh, a key part of what they're going to do just to have someone who can knock down shots, spread the floor, and do it on a good clip. Everybody's going to want a player like that, provided he can stay upright. And, you know, uh, unless Brooklyn makes some dramatic sweeping change, which they could, they could, I I don't see any reason why he can't repeat what he did this last year. So I think I like Cam Johnson going into next season. I think he'll be dra- he'll be drafted earlier than 128 this coming year. And frankly, he was drafted earlier than this number in most competitive leagues anyway. He probably went closer to like 105, 110. Um, I think he probably goes between 80 and 100 next year, and I probably would still consider taking him. Because he can, as you saw uh, in Brooklyn, he can pretty much walk into top 75 value 
because of how efficient he is. When your percentages are good, it's easy to have nice fantasy value. I think in Brooklyn, uh, he averaged like, what, half point more per game and almost everything else was exactly the same. You know, very repeatable fantasy numbers for Cam Johnson. You just like, he could end up being, and I don't, again, it's going to depend on where he ends up here. I, I assume they'll try to bring him back, but we don't know. And if someone else gives him a ton of money, then they'll make him a focal point, and he probably would have upside to go higher. The upside with Cam Johnson is, can he get more than a dozen shots up per game? You know, he averaged about 12 shots per game this year. That got him to top round, live 56-ish in his time in Brooklyn. Again, everything very repeatable, but when you're good with percentages, field goal percent, very, very minor negative, but the free throw percent was a good positive. The points can become a larger positive. The threes were a positive you want the extra volume out of someone who is better. Basically, do the threes, scoring, and free throws overwhelm whatever small negative the field goal percent would be? The answer is a resounding yes with him. Next on the board was Mike Conley, who I'm going to deem a uh, small victory. I thought he would be uh, around 75 range before a Jazz shutdown, and it was actually more like 100 range. Because he ended up taking more of a I'm going to steer the boat kind of job there. Um, he was settling in with the Timberwolves and was actually top 50 the last two months of the year, which is pretty remarkable. 15 points, 5 assists, 1.2 steals on good percentages. Uh, I believe he has one more year on his contract without looking it up. I think I'm going to roll with that. I, I feel like I remember that from talking about whether or not the Lakers would want to take him on near the trade deadline. The Wolves are going to be probably moving some pieces around. I don't think he's one of them. I think they really liked his stabilizing ability for that team. And Conley, who was sort of a small win this year, ADP around 130, he finished at 101 per game, 92 by totals. That's a win no matter how you slice it. I think he could be even better next season. And I don't think people are going to take him all that early. Probably earlier than 130. But, you know, if he ends up going around 100 or maybe just behind it, I would strongly consider that. And people are going to be like, oh, well, Cat wasn't there for some of those games. Yeah, I think Conley may have even played better once that team got healthy because he was, again, kind of the captain of a ship. Do I think he's going to go top 50? No, absolutely not. That, that was a, a little bit fluky, you know, shooting close to 50%. It's not a, not a repeatable number for him. But mid-40s is... You know, seven top 75 range, which is what I thought he was going to be in Utah before the trade this year. I, I To me, that's a number that he could get to. And we saw this season that he really didn't lose a step year over year. The decline that he hit a couple seasons back has plateaued as sort of like, for a while he was prime Mike Conley. Now he's old Mike Conley. But old Mike Conley isn't getting older by the year. It's just like, oh, he dropped off and now he's going. And at some point, he'll have another drop-off, but for now, we're going to have to assume it hasn't hit. And then Kelly Olynyk, who was a hit basically for the same reason, and then we got even luckier there, minus the midseason injury, or this could have actually been even better. I thought he was going to be around number 94 per game. He was number 106, so I think I got that one pretty much right. Because the difference between 94 and 106 is one good game. <laughs> 
Those, those slots are so damn close to one another. Totals, I had over 130 because I thought he'd get shut down. Turns out he didn't. Everybody else either got hurt or shut down in Utah, so they kind of needed him to play most of the games down the stretch. So Kelly finished at number 99 by totals. He ended up as a uh, a play in fantasy. Anytime he was upright this year, to me, that makes him a win. Someone getting drafted in the 12th round, late 12th, giving you uh, basically 8th, ninth round value for most of the season. That's an easy win. Love them both. Um, from a handicapping standpoint, we got a little bit lucky in that the totals rank ended up being far better than I expected. For Conley, it was because he got traded and got to play out the string. For Olenek, it's because he didn't and got to play out the string when everybody around him had gone down. Uh, but look, I, I, you know, I wrote into the old man squad, and Olenek was one of the target guys as well. I wrote into the budget here, expect these guys to fall off late in the year. And then if they don't, that's the, uh, that's the beauty part. Then you just sort of keep cashing those checks as long as they come in. Friends, you're all very sharp, smart people. So you understand when I say that using the internet without our pals at ExpressVPN is like leaving your keys in the car when you run into a gas station to get a snack. Yeah, most of the time nobody will notice. But there's that one time someone's just wandering by your car. You're filling up. Ooh, a car and a full tank of gas? Yep, they must feel like it's their birthday. So here's the thing. Why do you need a VPN? What does that actually mean? Well, every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafeterias, hotels, airports, whatever, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data, passwords, financial details, whatever all of those things get you to. And it doesn't take that much technical knowledge to hack somebody. Just some cheap hardware. You could get well, in this case, you're carjacked by a 12-year-old. And hackers can make about a grand selling your info on the dark web. So, of course, they're going to do it if it's easy. I love ExpressVPN because it makes me feel safe. And it allows me to do things on the internet, streaming-wise, various services, that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. So it is personally important to me. I do not want my information on the dark web. Now that I have a family, I think it's even more important. And you should want that too. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash hoopball. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash hoopball. And you get an extra three months free on your membership. Expressvpn.com slash hoopball. Go there now. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the old man squad. You got him through four episodes, top to bottom. It, uh, overall, I think was a really good season. And the way that I feel like I can say that is because I won a ton of money in fantasy this year. Um, last year, we didn't. I think last year was probably the worst year for fantasy, at least for me personally. Um, a lot of you guys won with our stuff anyway, so... I mean, good, that's what I wanted to, but, like, coming out of COVID here has probably helped also, and, um, yeah, I mean, getting a lot of stuff right and being on Markinen and Brooke Lopez and, 
you know, some of these names that we talked about during these old man squad reviews has been an extraordinary help. And that's what you need. Because, and we'll talk about playoffs here in just a second, but the way that we, and I'll probably do a whole show on this, but you guys know that have listened to this, to Fantasy NBA Today for a long time. My mantra, my ethos for fantasy sports is simplify the game. Simplify it. Get guys early that you can rely on. Get guys in the middle with some upside. And cover up whatever you missed with some home run hacks late and a whole bunch of waiver wire work. And you can win pretty much every year. Don't overcomplicate things. Don't try to be the smartest person in the room. There's an easier way. And that's what we do here on Fantasy NBA Today. Um... My promo today is that I'd love to hear from you guys on Twitter or via email if you'd like to join the fray. We are looking for baseball, basketball, football, and hockey contributors here at Sports Ethos. Uh, Also, folks on the team coverage side, but I do want to put something out in front here. I want to get out in front of one thing. And the one thing I want to get out in front of is this is not a hobby. If you want to get involved with us here, it's to make something truly special. So reach out uh, if that's what you want to be a part of. At Dan Bespris on Twitter, here in the YouTube live chat, or email roster at sportsethos.com. We can get that dialogue started. But now, let's talk about the playoffs a little bit. Nuggets go up two games to none on the Phoenix Suns. Chris Paul hurt. He's having an old man year. It might be it might be the end of the line for Chris Paul uh, able to stay upright. And this, forget the, the injury to Chris Paul. The stuff you're seeing with Phoenix right now is the big fear in them not having time to gel post-trade deadline. They are a collection of terrific basketball players who don't really know how to play with each other. They got by the Clippers because the whole Clippers team got hurt. Nuggets, as we talked about, dramatically undervalued coming into this series. I thought this game would close would be closer, and it was for a while. Uh, and then Phoenix completely stopped scoring, and the Nuggets were able to pull away late. Mostly because Nikola Jokic had his sort of defining moment. I, <sighs> the dialogue around Nikola Jokic, and I'm going to tweet this also because I feel pretty strongly about this opinion. The dialogue around Nikola Jokic playoff success is one of the stupidest dialogues I have ever heard in my life. Because the one time he had a team around him, his club was effectively an Anthony Davis buzzer beater away from probably winning the bubble championship. If the Nuggets beat the Lakers in the Western Conference, I guess those those are the finals, right? Western Conference finals. Uh, They probably go on and win the title. Because they found something in their previous series. And the only thing that stopped them was that LeBron and the Lakers were as efficient as the Nuggets in that series and hit one more big shot. And then the Heat, you saw, they just sort of ran out of gas. They had some guys get hurt after everybody had to play 47 and a half minutes per ball game. If the Nuggets got by the Lakers in the bubble, they'd probably win the title. Nikola Jokic probably has a championship right now. And then people are like, oh, but he didn't do anything since then. It's like, yeah. Dude didn't have Jamal Murray and or Michael Porter Jr. for either of the two playoff runs recently. Jamal Murray, I think he missed two, right? Michael Porter Jr. missed one of them. 
They didn't have Aaron Gordon prior to that. KCP's been a terrific ad. The Nuggets are healthy in the playoffs for the first time since 2020, I think. Am I getting that right? Yeah, 2021, 2022. They weren't healthy. It was Jokic versus the universe, so of course he didn't win a title. What the hell, man? There are not many superstar-level players that can win a championship with nobody around them. Sorry to the rest of that ragtag bunch, but that was not a good supporting cast. Jokic carried those teams as far as they could go. But they couldn't really guard anybody. And then if teams, you know, through... They just say, all right, Nikola Jokic, you can go ahead and you can try to beat us. But the rest of these guys, they're not going to get squat. Jamal Murray didn't have a very good game yesterday, but you know who did? KCP. You know who also did? Aaron Gordon. You know who also did off the bench? Bruce Brown. He has help now. And the Suns don't have chemistry. Which is not a knock on Phoenix. It's a knock on the fact that they traded for one of the best players in the universe and he promptly missed almost a month with a sprained ankle on a wet floor. That's bad luck. But they're trying to figure it out on the fly. And I almost feel like Phoenix would have been better served in a longer, more grueling series with the Clippers because they would have had to figure out more stuff. Instead of just being like, ah, well, this Clippers team, they're not very good. We're going to outscore them. Yeah, you're going to have to play a little bit against Denver. Suns will be better at home. Uh, I think there is this idea that they're just going to magically win ball games, but uh, you know maybe they will because KD and Booker can do that for you. But this, right from the time that series price came out, we talked about it on Friday's show. Suns favored, I think, in this series without home court and no chemistry. Uh, I don't think so, buddy. And then Philly. Wow, this is a big one. And I did say. By the way, the line got to 10.5. Remember on yesterday's show I said if that line got up and over 10, I'd probably take the underdog because how many times is a 10 or more point underdog in the playoffs really getting blown out? The blowouts happen when you don't expect it to happen. You know, Lakers over Grizzlies in the deciding game, that type of stuff. James Harden, 45 points, was brilliant. Paul Reed was brilliant. I mean, look. Everybody on Philly had to be brilliant to make up for the lack of Joel Embiid. And they were. They were. They got out-rebounded 38-28. to Philadelphia got 28 rebounds in that ballgame and won because they had 17 three-pointers and only turned the ball over six times. That's how they won it. If they were not perfect, they would have lost that game. But they were perfect, and they had to be. For Boston, this is exactly what I talked about on yesterday's podcast. Knowing there was no Embiid... This game felt like one where the Celtics were going to come out and they were going to be like, meh, we'll just outscore this bunch. Without Joel to beat us up, we'll just beat them. They didn't focus in. They were not as focused as they needed to be. And then the score goes higher because you knew Philly was going to try to play faster without Embiid. You knew Boston was going to care less about the defensive side. We loved that over on yesterday's show. Nailed the handicap on that ball game. I mean, like, Nailed, nailed it. Uh, but what's going on tonight? Lakers, five-point underdogs uh, in Golden State. You guys know from yesterday's show, I still like L.A. in this ballgame. Getting to the five was nice because it came down from five, down to like four, and it's been slowly working its way back up. Uh, total at 227. I don't really know what to do with the total in this game. I would lean to the under because I'm mostly looking at Lakers capitalizing on a very tired Warriors team. 
Golden State is not going to want to push the pace. Lakers are not really a pace-pushing team either. They do run. They're a good transition team, but they're more of a pick-and-choose. You know, can they get LeBron out in the open court is really the question. Otherwise, it's sort of a probe in transition, then usually they'll kind of set things back up again. This is for, uh, and, and I don't think people realize this, this is actually not a terrible matchup for the Lakers because the Warriors don't want to go fast. That's what the Lakers struggled with on the Memphis side. When the Grizzlies got out and ran, the Lakers got roasted. That was basically what happened in Game 5 in Memphis. Grizzlies had transition opportunities. Heat Knicks, ah, again, I don't know how you fade Miami. I'm not on them. I'll say that right there. Because uh, at some point, there's a shoe that's going to drop. But look, like Jimmy Butler wasn't even that great in their opening game, and they won it anyway. The Heat are a far better team than the Cavaliers, as we've seen. Come playoff time, regular season, the Cavs were better. But this sort of battle-tested thing with Jimmy Butler, it's making a difference. Last ball game went over. Uh, this one's been moving up. I don't know what the hell to do with the total on Heat Knicks either. I'll, I'll admit, I don't have a great feel for that. As far as the side goes, um, you know, if you like, it's hard to see the Heat getting blown out. I'd have to look at the underdog in both games today. And no real feel for the total in the first one. Probably a small lean to the under in the second one. That's the way I'd look at these ball games. Should be fun, though. Heat Knicks, you know, these two teams are just going to beat the living piss out of each other. And then Lakers-Warriors is, is kind of the opposite, where for L.A., they're going to have to figure out what to do with the Kevon Looney rebounding thing. That's got to be a priority. I mean, obviously, they're going to be looking at Steph, but... Every team's got the 9,000 things they try to do with Steph, and none of them really work work in the traditional sense. You just sort of hope that you can catch him off guard a little bit. I think one thing you'll see the Lakers do that the Kings weren't really able to is more ball denial. Lakers did that a bunch with uh, Anthony Edwards when they played the Wolves. They did it some with John Morant in Memphis, although... Again, once they got him into the half court, then you saw the Lakers sort of back off on the ball denial stuff and start to pack the paint instead. With the Warriors, I think you're going to see a lot more ball denial because they're not worried really about Golden State taking it to the rim in the same way. So everybody's just going to be out pushing out a little farther, trying to make it harder to get the ball to Steph, which, I mean, crap, can you blame him? Dude, I'd fitty. What are the Warriors going to do? They're going to probably hope that Draymond Green and Kevon Looney can slow down Anthony Davis, and historically they have, although AD had a good ball game against Golden State the last two time these or last time these two teams played. So we'll kind of see how that thing shakes out. Uh, if Dre is on AD, that leaves LeBron with a pretty good size advantage over someone like Wiggins or speed advantage. So I, I think you'll see the Lakers try to do something with that. But this is going to be a, a a fun series. Where game one is the one you're looking at like, okay, do the Lakers have that rest edge and how much does that matter? And then after that, does it settle in a little bit more? But you know damn well I'll be watching, and I hope you will too. I am Dan Bespris, signing off here on this uh, Tuesday morning. Have a delightful day. We'll catch up with you guys again tomorrow, where we'll be talking about, I don't know yet. <laughs> Later.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.